0: Ladies and gentlemen, as part of the Jeremiah Show, welcome to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Now, here's the host of the show, a man whose meeting with Art Carney was one of his best memories and one of his saddest. It's TV's Tim Stack. Yay, me again, again. You're back and being punished again with It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Uh, hey, everybody, welcome back. I have a really fun show today. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about Philadelphia with some great old friends and show business and books and everything. But let me quickly tell the Art Carney story. All my stories seem to be when I was a waiter. So I was a waiter at the Ginger Man. Sam, I guess, will remember that place. And uh, they used to have this Sunday brunch, George Siegel's jazz band would play. And Art Carney came in with some people. And he was, at this point, he's an, an Academy Award winner. He'd won an Oscar for. Harry and Tano, and I'm waiting on him, and he's incredibly pleasant, and it's like, you know, it's Norton from The Honeymooners. I'm so thrilled that I'm waiting on Norton from The Honeymooners. <clears throat> so uh, he, he – he and he had not been known for being a pretty big drinker, like a bad drinker, but he's drinking soda water. So it's like, okay, great. So the, the band finishes, and the dining room clears out. It's empty, it's empty, and then suddenly I look over at the table – and Art Carney is still at the table. So I went over and I went, uh, hey, Mr. Carney, you're all checked out. You're ready to go. And he said, uh, he hands me a $100 bill. And he said, bring me four shots of Shenley. <laughs> so at this point, I'm going to get the guy whatever he wants. But I also know, like, he's been drinking soda water. Now his friends are gone. And the now the booze comes in. He's going to sneak some shots. And it's kind of like funny but it's kind of sad at the same time. So I go to the bar and I say, give me four shots of Shendley. We don't serve Shenley. Shenley's like the lowest whiskey you can buy. I said, what else you got? And he tells me, I can't remember the brand. I go back, Mr. Carney, they only have blankety blank. He says, great, four shots of that. So I come back, he gets the $100 bill and I get the change. He says, you keep that. But here comes the really funny kind of sad part was, well, actually, this is the funny part. He starts doing Norton from the Honeymooners, where Norton would move his arms. He always wore a T-shirt, Norton, but he always did his arms like he was getting his sleeves back to do something. So so I'm watching, and it's like my childhood. It's Norton doing – it's Art Carney doing Norton for me, and he quickly – and he's moving the drinks around, and he does four shots like Norton would do four shots. Thank you, my man. Keep the change. And it was the largest tip I had ever gotten was like, ninety two dollar tip or something at four dollars at two dollars a shot uh but anyway it was like a it was like a thrill but it was kind of sad at the same time because he was a drinker but again it was my chance to uh wait on art carney okay i have two great guests today we're going to start with one uh and then bring in my other guest paul hutter later on but he can jump in again paul anything you know just jump in super loose so we uh we have a cue so let's introduce our first guest by this clip. This is Rattlers. What a way to die. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: Rattlers.
3: Thrills, excitement, death.
0: (laughs) Rattlers, striking soon. Rated PG. (laughs) I love that at the end. Rated PG. Uh, Okay, Sam Chu Jr. was born and raised in Philadelphia. He is one of the last inhabitants of what can be called Old Philadelphia. Uh, We're bringing a second guest in the second half to talk about that. Sam was an announcer in Philadelphia, moved to Hollywood in 1965, was a contract player at 20th Century Fox with James Brolin, Tom Sillick. He'll talk about that. He's appeared in literally hundreds of TV shows. He did an episode of Mannix. I love that you were on Mannix, Sam. That just, what a TV show. show that was. And my favorite line of Sam's is, I've played every Kennedy but Rose. Please welcome Sam Chu, Jr. Yay! Uh, Why not Rose? (laughs) (laughs) He's he's going to be offered Rose soon.
3: No, I actually did. I, I believe, I know Martin Sheen and Billy Devane, but I believe I'm the only actor who played both Bobby and Jack. Yeah, in two I, different, obviously, television movies, opposite Peter Strauss and Young Joe, the Forgotten Kennedy, I played Jack. And uh, let me say, on behalf of the uh, family, uh, <laughs> I bore—I I, I I looked quite a lot like him in those days when I had a lot of hair. And then I played um, Bobby in a movie called Tail Gunner Joe, opposite Peter Boyle, also uh-huh. from also from Philly.
0: His dad was so, Pete. Yeah,
3: that gang. Was about Joe McCarthy. Yes. But uh, yeah, well, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you, Sam. Sam.
0: Thanks for being here. Um, so uh, that was a really long intro, and I could have done more because you've had a great career and a really uh, not boring life. Let me put it that way. You have had quite an adventure, my friend. Um, so tell us how did you get to? I, I've seen it on other. Uh, I've seen it on other uh, interviews with you, but repeat again how you got to Hollywood because. Doesn't it involve Peter Fonda?
3: Yeah, it does. That was the punchline, but that's okay.
0: <laughs> no, I'm, I, fam- I just, I'm famous I, for I, that. When I
3: was at Temple University, I, I had a radio show and we did radio dramas, you know, and I was always the announcer, the White Shadow, and I loved it. And we did TV productions and uh, I just kind of got hooked on it. And I did a few plays locally in Philadelphia theater things. And there was a movie being made in. At Temple University, they filmed a bit of a movie called um, uh, "Sweet Love Bitter," and it was about uh, the trumpet. No, the saxophone player. um, What's his name now? (laughs) Anyway, Charlie Gregory. Oh, uh, what?
0: Probably Charlie Bird. If if it was Dick Gregory playing the part.
3: Yeah, Dick Gregory. No, Dick Gregory. Dick Gregory played Charlie Bird Parker. Yeah. I had a small part, and he and I became friends. And he and Don Murray from Knott's Landing were the stars of the movie. And they Also a Santa
0: Barbara resident, Don Murray.
3: Yeah, they they encouraged me to go out to Hollywood. Long story short, I was at a party in Philadelphia before I left in July of 65. And a friend of mine um, said, Sam, if you're going out to Hollywood, you don't know anybody. I said, no, I don't. But I'm just going to kind of wing it. I have the name of an agent. He gave me Peter Fonda's number because he had roomed with Peter at Westminster School in Connecticut. Uh-huh. I called up Peter Fonda the week that I got there. After two days, he said, "Yeah, man, come on over." I went over to his house on Coldwater Canyon, and it was surrealistic. I drive up the driveway; there are motorcycles in the driveway—two Harleys. One is Peter's; the other is Dennis Hopper's. Thus, the evolution. Right, and that was—we all the right Rider. Yeah.
0: Is this, yeah. Bef- yeah, is this before or after Easy Rider? This no, is- no, it was before. Yeah, we, before.
3: I started writing with them, and we we writing ideas for movies, and I wasn't very good at it, but, you know, Dennis was off the wall, but he was brilliant, and one day up at the pool, he said, I got it, man, we're going to do the definitive motorcycle picture, but we're doing it on bikes instead of horses. That was the beginning. Peter asked me if I could uh, contribute – thirty thousand dollars, which I tried to borrow from my father to invest in a motorcycle <laughs> movie, no thanks, <laughs> But if I, I if I had been able to invest that thirty thousand, I was gonna be one third owner in the project. Really on Bert Schneider got my thirty thousand worth and I was gonna play the Jack Nicholson part, go figure. Really? But it, yeah, it, it never evolved. But Peter and I remained very good friends. I was very close to he and his wife, and and uh, I fished with him up in Montana a lot. And he opened all the doors. The first day I went, I'm speaking of the doors, we went to see the doors. But he introduced me to three guys who were playing up at his swimming pool one afternoon. When I said, oh, this is Sam Chu, who likes to sing, too. I'd like you to meet David Crosby, Roger McGuinn, and Stephen Stills. Wow. Thank you very much. They were then the birds. I mean, I was there in, in, in 1965. I was the next door neighbor of Jay Sebring and Sharon Tate. Get out of and here. I, I never there. knew that. I'm not kidding you, on Easton Drive in Beverly Hills. Did you kill them? I, I could have I been murdered.
2: You know? <laughs> <laughs> I My mean, hands, hands are clean. <laughs> no, it, uh, no seriously,
0: you lived up there near them?
3: I did. I lived on Easton Drive, right off Benedict Canyon, and and then my house looked right over Terry Melcher's house. His mother, Doris Day. Yeah, sure. He used to ask me to look out for his house around the swimming pool when he was away in case anybody would try to break in. Oh, my well, gosh. Well, guess, guess who broke in? No, well, it was surrealistic.
0: So I will- I, I, I'm actually let me interrupt one second, Sam, because I was going to ask you if there was any. I'm reading this crazy book about Manson now called Chaos. And uh, no. and I was going to ask you if like if you ever ran into Terry Melcher. I, I knew
3: Terry very well. Really? And great. Fredrickson lived around the corner for me i mean I, it was extraordinary i didn't know anybody when i went out there and i met one through peter fonda i met everybody wow i mean it was unbelievable and, and uh
0: and so how did the contract at fox
3: happen and it, i i met a woman named pamela De Nova, who was the head of of one of the heads of casting at fox and uh, i had an agent named hal gefsky who handled richard beamer was her main client oh yeah sure west, side, west story. side story yeah yeah And he sent me up to audition for this talent program. They wanted to bring back the contract system, you know, which was sort of obliviated, you know, 20 or 30 years before. But they started a talent program. I met with Jack Bauer, the head of casting. I met Dick Zanuck and Daryl Zanuck. Mr. Zanuck had a cigar. He was sitting behind his desk. He said, what's with the name? He said, you don't look Chinese. I said, well, I'm not. He said, you got to change the name. So I went (laughs) back about four days later and I suggested a couple of names like how about Evan Williams. He said, no, you're going to keep Sam Chu. It's so weird that nobody will forget it. So I auditioned and they put me under contract with Tom Selleck, Lyle Wagner, Sam Elliott, and Jim Brolin. Wow. These guys are so handsome and they all became stars. and I wasn't a star, but I did work a lot. We had classes every day. We had people like George Cukor come in and direct us. Really? Gene, yeah. Gene Kelly came over and taught us how to dance. And they paid us $300 a week. And they used us. My first TV show that I ever did was an episode of Peyton Place with Ryan O'Neill, uh, Chris Connolly, and Mia Farrow. Yeah. And it was it was unbelievable. Oh. I, just, I just got lucky. I wasn't a star, but I worked a lot. I was on The Bionic Woman for three years off and on. How about General- the TV
0: show? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs>
3: yeah, no. But, yeah. Anyway, it was wonderful. I also did a lot of voiceover work as those. That was my bread and butter. Yeah, g-
0: g- what was your best voiceover? What was your, like...
3: Well, I, I when I say best, I mean, the most... Uh, the one that I got most notoriety for yes. was that I was the original narrator of the Shark Week series on the Discovery Channel. I, that When that first came up, I was the narrator. It was a new concept and and the shark is the most predatory creature. <laughs> in history, you know? And I narrated all that stuff. I narrated a lot of books on tape, a lot of Discovery Channel, National Geographic stuff. And I was in an interview one day and sitting right next to me, I look over, I went, oh, my God, that's James Earl Jones. And it was Jimmy. He's the voice of God. Yeah, but sure. I, he was the voice of Verizon. And I became the voice of, welcome to at and I, I was the voice of AT&T. <laughs> and a lot of stuff. And you got residuals, as Tim knows. Yeah, so I remember those days. Money, you go in, you, you don't have to learn the lines. You say the stuff, you go home, and you make money.
0: Yeah, the funniest thing, you're the first guy, Sam, I've met. From the old days of doing voiceovers, who never smoked, because all those guys, Ernie Anderson and all those guys, just pounded Winston constantly. I to did, keep I that did voice. smoke, but I didn't. Oh, you smoke did that smoke.
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah, but not a lot. But Ernie Anderson, I worked with Ernie, and Ernie Anderson used to smoke in the studio. Yeah, and I also did, I also did a commercial. I did something with Gary Owens, and I couldn't believe it. I went in and and uh, Gary Owens and yeah, and, and we went into the studio, and Gary actually did. And this is the Gary Owen show. And I said, Gary, why do you do that? He said, so I can hear myself talk.
0: <laughs> he, he, he used to do that. Yeah, for real, I think that's a, and that's sort of how he talked. Like, if you would say, like, he came in and did some voiceovers for Son of the Beach. Yeah. It's like, hey, Gary, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. It was always yeah. like
3: voiceover. Oh, yeah. And I worked with Don LaFontaine. I remember him. He, he, Don LaFontaine, he might have done the Rattlers thing, but. Don LaFontaine was the
0: king of trailers, you know. Yeah, I love that. I got to say, Sam, you were in two movies. I would say Rattlers is as (laughs) bad a movie as was ever. made. But here's one. You're in a really underrated comedy that people should go back and look at if they haven't seen it called Serial. with With Martin Mall and Sarah. And Sam has a scene in there. It's just a killer scene as the guy who marries them. Yeah. But it's one of those movies that people need to go back and watch. It's a really funny, clever 80s movie. I just went back and watched The In-Laws again. Uh, uh, yeah. It's so good. These Some of these oh, I'm, 80s I'm movies need to be yeah. watched again and appreciated for the comedy.
3: It was. Sadly, it unfortunately, and it was directed by Bill Persky. Persky and Denoff, sure. one of the great actors. And I had a, I had a big part. I mean, and I was there with Martin Mull, Tuesday Weld, Nita Talbot, Sally Kellerman, Christopher Lee, Wow, Tommy Smothers, Yes, married us. It, it's, but it's all about ass and hot tubbing yeah, and white. It's stuff. really
0: funny. It's still it, really held up.
3: It, but it, but it came out too close to Bob, Carol, Ted, and Alice. It was in a
0: similar vein. It's you a know? more clever movie. It's it, a, it was it's it's a was very funny, funny, funny movie. Okay, we got to take our first break. I'm talking to Sam Chu, Jr. Uh, we're going to talk to somebody else, too, in the second half of this. He's an old friend, an actor, great career, great life. Um, and I'll just plug, uh, Sam, you want, you're writing a story, right, you said? You're, 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 you're working on your memoir. I'll just plug uh, the show I worked on Sprung, which is on Amazon Freebie. It's a great show, and we're going to take our first break. We'll be right back. You're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Hey, everybody, it's Tim Stack from It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack, asking you to watch the show Sprung on Freevie, Amazon's new free channel. I promise you it's funny, it's got heart, and my shoulder appears in episode three. I'm
3: Sam Chu, your host. No, your real host is Radio with the TV guy, Timothy Stack.
0: <laughs> well, Catherine, the man who fired you is with us tonight. He's the superintendent of schools for Mustang County, Nevada. Please welcome Mr. Kenneth Philbrick. (laughs) Kenneth, why are you persecuting Catherine?
3: Dick, she violated her moral clauses and I was just
0: following the rules.
1: Oh, some rules? Dick, why don't you ask him what he offered me as a way to keep my job?
0: Okay, I will. What did he offer?
1: Oh, he said I could keep my job if I was willing to recreate the flute scene from Mr. Holland's penis.
0: <laughs> That's a lie. She doesn't have any proof. Yeah, something tells me she's not lying. Here's a question. It's been signed by the students, teachers, and the parents. Even the parents signed a petition? Well, no, just the dads. Okay. <laughs> well, how about it? Ken, is he going to give her another chance? Yeah. The only way this. That-
3: The only way this tramp's coming back to my school is under my dead body.
0: Oh, really? Look here, mister. I want to say something to you. I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. Except stand here so I can read the prompter. (laughs) (laughs) That was a clip from Nightstand with Dick Dietrich. My old show that Sam came on and did a bit for. Very funny. Uh, Sam Chu, welcome to the show. Actor. Uh, voiceover guy soon to be an author great old Philadelphian we're going to talk about that uh coming up in the next segment um but Sam I wanted to ask you I was looking at your uh credits and one of the things that jumped out was you did an episode of here's Lucy with Lucille Ball that's right so I mean there's this big a legend in Hollywood as you and they're still making movies about her it's just so what was she like that's the simple question what was she like
3: absolutely fabulous the the two um <clears throat> the two most wonderful people I ever had the privilege of working with were Lucille Ball and James Garner wow uh and uh and I worked with Bill Conrad you know on Canon and I, I did Ironside I mean I got to work with these huge stars uh, uh, one of the other ones that was fabulous too was Glenn Ford.
0: Yeah, I've only heard that. Everybody you mentioned, I only heard great things about. Here's a a Philadelphia (laughs) twist is, you know, when you're a guest star on a show, you're really not supposed to bother the stars of the show. But I'm doing a Quincy and it was bored. I don't know, for whatever reason, Jack Klugman is over by himself. And it's kind of like, don't bother him. And I just couldn't help myself. And I just said, I think I said, like, what's your favorite cheesesteak or something and it just opened up a conversation because jack clogman nice. was from philly so he, he yeah. turned out to be a nice guy but i had heard you know like stay away stay away so it's great to hear uh about james garner and and lucille ball what about now who was horrible Lucy took a liking
3: to me i mean i uh, it, the show was called the greek my greek wedding and i play this guy who marries a greek girl and we have a greek thing where they break glasses and stomp on the tables and yes. everything. And, for some reason, she really liked me, and she lived right around the corner from me, and she invited me over, and I became really close to Desi and Lu- Lu- her daughter, Lucy. Yes. and I used to go over there and have dinner. I mean, really? It was unbelievable. She was so down to earth, so sweet, and so wonderful and kind, and I
0: just, I never forgot it. I mean, what a privilege. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. So what, was there anybody who was just horrible? You don't have to answer the question yes. if you don't want.
3: Yeah, no, I'll, I'll be honest about it. Yeah, I won't. Tell, I won't tell you who it was. Okay, but I'll just tell you quickly. I was signed to do a guest starring part on a show at Paramount. Yeah, and and it was a very poignant scene where I play the son of a man that I. I mean, my father gets murdered, and I and this guy has to tell me that my father was murdered, and my father wasn't a criminal or anything. He was just shot and. And I had a very emotional scene where I had to break down and everything else, and I was prepared for it. I was warned by the director before, you know, when I got on, yeah. years ago, a director said to me, if you want to you want to have a good career in Hollywood and save yourself, always be nice to everybody, but particularly the cinematographer, because they can leave you on the cutting room floor, sure. which is true. But anyway, I was told by the assistant director and by the director, that, Sam, don't take offense to this guy, because he's probably going to not do, he may not even, he'll do two shots. He will not work with you for your close-ups. Yeah. And I said, well, that's fine. I don't need somebody standing. Normally they will. Anyway, uh, he came in, he did his stuff. He couldn't, he barely even said hello to me or anybody else. And then he left and he's got a very bad reputation. And I guess, can I say it?
0: Yeah, say it. That's what we're waiting for.
3: All right. Well, I'll tell you who it was. It was William Shatner. What? No, I'm just kidding. William Shatner. People hate him. Well, I could tell you other things about him that I can't say on the air, but uh, no. He rides. You know, My son runs horse shows all over the country, and Shatner rode Tennessee Walkers for a while, and he was a big horse guy, but even in the horse world, Nobody likes him. He's just he was mean and yeah. he wouldn't do he wouldn't do a two shot. He didn't even say after we finished our scene and I we did the master. And when we did my close up, I was in tears. And I, as I was supposed to be. And well, that's all we had to do. We did one take and we didn't have to do it again. But he just kind of left. Is this on he, Star Trek? No, it was called T.J. Oh, T.J. Hooker. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I'm sorry to say that, but that's not all. That's the only bad experience I ever had in the business. Everybody I ever worked with. Wow. Good for you. I did two movies with Sylvester Stallone. Nicest guy in the world. Not the Rockies. Two other movies. Greatest guy. We became buddies. I did three movies with Charlie Bronson, who was Uh also a fabulous guy because Paul Conner was his agent and right. Paul Conner's son was my best friend, Poncho. So, I mean, I just, uh, Bradford Dillman who lived in Santa Barbara, Brad and I played FBI agents in one of these Bronson movies. And I'm telling you, it was a, it was a magical, magical life. And I was just lucky, but I did, as Tim can tell you, you got a network. You, and I, I schmoozed a lot out there. I mean, I, I worked the social scene on both sides, not only with the the showbiz people, but with the kind of, you know, I went to parties that Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan were at. I mean, it was amazing.
0: That's crazy. You know, it's funny when when, uh, I moved to Santa Barbara and uh, I got an interview once uh, with Roseanne uh, to be her head writer. And and I said, yeah, I live in Santa Barbara. She goes, Santa Barbara. I live not you don't go to the parties? How do you get a job? And I said, like you know, it's true. It's there. There's a way. There is a networking in Hollywood that goes on. That's a party scene, and it's it's good to go to those parties. And you you know, we're smart at the time to do it. So, but but I just love that you sort of caught Hollywood. Because I got there in '79, and it was kind of over, but people hadn't accepted it yet. But you, yeah. but they all talked about Hollywood and so, Southern California in the '60s and '50s, just like paradise, just no traffic, p- fun, no pressure, paradise.
3: It was, it was, and I'll tell you, for those people who have not seen it, uh, I would, I would t- totally recommend. Because it's exactly like it was once upon a time in Hollywood. Yeah, oh,
0: that's a you know, fantastic. That
3: movie is brilliant. It captures, I mean, I used to, I used to get down to the whiskey a go-go and uh, the whole thing and the mood changed tremendously after the Manson murders. Everybody became paranoid. Really? Started locking their gates and locking their house. And that was, that was the beginning of, of the end. And he depicted it in that movie brilliantly, I think.
0: Yeah, he sure did. I mean, that movie. That's one of those movies, when it comes on, I just watch it. You know, like Godfather 2, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Goodfellas. It's like, okay, here's what I'm doing for the next three hours. I'm watching this movie. Uh, It's just one of those things. So uh, we're coming up on our second break. And when we come back, another guest is going to join us. So we're going to talk about uh, Sam's previous life before he came to Hollywood, but Paul, the, uh, he's sort of an expert in this world, and, uh, and he's an old friend. So we're going to come back. Uh, you're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack, and we'll be right back. What did you think of my wedding present? i like my presence at least acknowledged, you know.
1: It was beautiful. And sweet, thanks. Yes,
0: yeah, yeah. She was quite a boat, the true love, wasn't she?
1: was and is
0: that was a clip from an old but fantastic movie called the Philadelphia Story I thought it'd be fun to throw a clip in as we move into our next segment I have no idea what the definition of yar is but maybe we'll find out maybe Sam might know that anyway I want to introduce the guest Um, he is the author of two books the last the first one is called the you can buy both of these on Amazon uh, and I have, and they're both really, really good and really interesting. Especially if you're a sports guy. In the second book, uh, the first book is called "The Last Philadelphia Gentleman: The Sunset of an American Ruling Class," and the goal—that's uh, the first book, uh, which really looks at like Philadelphia society and where it all came from and where it disappeared to. Uh, the second book is called, which is you know, I love. Uh, The Golden Age of Ivy League Basketball from Bill Bradley to Penn's Final Four, 1964-1979. And I'll add this to Paul's intro. Arguably the best athlete to ever come out of. Look what I'm wearing, guys. Germantown Academy. Please welcome Paul Hutter. Yay! Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here.
2: Okay. Great to see you, Tim. It's Um, It's been a while.
0: So, uh, Paul, I'll give you a little bit of history. He, he went, we went to the same high school. I had no business going there, but I did because my brother was a decent athlete who was a, an a, an N for Paul, who was the quarterback. Uh, and I think they thought I was a good athlete and boy, I sure fooled them. Um,
2: Canadian, so.
0: <laughs> so, uh, but then you went to Princeton and went to work at wall street and then you started writing books and, the books i just i know you love them they were passion projects for you so but just tell us about the uh, the first book which is no tell us about the second book which is sort of looking at old philadelphia uh
2: yeah well uh actually the the second book the the uh, could be the story of sam chu and his family and in, in some respects because uh uh it essentially goes back to the uh, beginning of uh, uh the you know the period of uh when uh, uh, people were coming over from the religious wars and Sam's family in 1607 John Chu how many how many generations ago was that Sam when you when John Chu came over what would that uh
3: I think 11 or 12,
2: uh, 12. 11 or 12 1620,
3: 1622 he came over on the uh on the right. you know the hope, and charity and then his wife and family came over after that and they went to Jamestown and then they migrated north from there
2: right one it's said uh, believe that Sam's family also came over in 16 uh, or, or John Chu came, may have come over with uh, John Smith yeah in 1607 mm-hmm. and then went back to England came back in 1622 And uh, uh, so Sam's uh, ancestors were among the oldest uh, uh, immigrants to the United States. In fact, Sam's family, the Chu family, probably has the most distinguished pedigree, uh, possibly of any family in the country. That's so funny.
0: 1607,
2: uh, you know, 12, 13 generations. It might even be, uh, the the number of generations is incredible. But... uh, so the, the the book basically is tells the story of uh, uh, the wasp uh, leadership in the country and how uh, during the religious wars of uh, the sixteen hundreds, uh, people like Sam's family came over and uh, developed the, uh, uh, the, the the principles of free markets, the Enlightenment, and so forth. And uh, eventually, by the seventeen hundreds. Uh, Philadelphia was being, uh, had become the uh, largest city uh, in in the colonies, and by 1776, the Declaration of Independence and uh, Madisonian democracy, the Constitution were created by the WASP uh, uh, cohort, and uh, Sam's family was critical to that. And Of course, Princeton University, where I went to school, and Princeton, Harvard, and Yale, and Uh, The whole uh, the whole background that led to the industrial revolution and then the Gilded Age with the Vanderbilts, Rockefellers, Morgans, and so forth. So that's basically the uh, you know the background of the movie. But uh, early on in the the book, but early on in the book, I talk about the I don't know if you guys recall the 1978 the Preppy Handbook came out. Yeah, Uh, sure,
0: Lisa Birnbach. She had a little. uh, She's been back in the news recently because of the. E. Jean carroll libel suit against trump she lisa bernbach was a witness in that trial and i've seen her on some
2: right i, I read something about that uh, yeah well the, the the first part of the book the early chapters uh are essentially a updated recreation of the uh uh so many aspects of the preppy handbook the uh the background they're going going back to the uh uh chivalry and the british uh, uh, aristocratic gentleman what uh, what are gentlemen's all about and that uh the, the british aristocratic gentleman uh really turned into uh evolved into the uh uh white anglo-saxon protestant gentleman of right. uh, which, uh, which sam is a
0: uh, uh he's a card british carrier
2: the, 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 old, the old man lost gentleman one could say <laughs> And uh, that that part of the book yeah, it goes through the li- lifestyle clubs, uh, dress schools, neighborhoods, and so forth of uh, uh, the Wasp gentleman. And uh,
0: it's uh, I always found the preppy handbook to be it was kind of fun and it was all, kind of, but it was sort of like there was a satire to it. What I like about your book, Paul, is that I mean there was a little of like a wink, wink, nod, nod with her book, kind of right. like um, we're all this what i like about your book is that it's really a, a history book is what it is it's and it's written it's, it's written very very well it's very interesting but it's a history book as opposed to i'm um, i'm exposing something here and making fun of it not that anything's wrong with the preppy handbook i'm not knocking her or the book but your your book is different so sam tell us about because i know this is in the book as well your home, your ancestral home, not yours personally. You never lived at Cliveden, did you? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Tell us about Cliveden, because this is a real place that your family lived in. Yeah. And
3: built. Well, I grew up the first twelve years of my life on a farm in Radnor. We had my my family had about three hundred acres. It was absolutely beautiful and bucolic, and still lives. my grandfather was kind of a dilettante and and my grand but he had a lot of land because benjamin chu was william penn's best friend and lawyer and the penn family just gave land to everybody so we had all this land yeah but my my father the cliveden c-l-i-v-e-d-e-n a lot of people say cliveden but it's not it's cliveden it was named after the Astors' mansion in england and uh It was built by Benjamin Chu, the chief justice of of the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, the first one, and William Penn's lawyer. In 1750, he built the house. It's considered to be even more than Monticello. It's in Germantown, which now is not a particularly great area of Philadelphia, sadly. But it was built as his country house. He lived in town in Philadelphia, and Germantown is 13 miles I love
0: that of the country.
3: And and it was 13 miles. But in the summer to get there in 1700s, you had to take horses and carriages. And they were lucky to have that house because they avoided the horrible yellow fever plague that Paul knows about, which wiped out half of Philadelphia. But the Battle of Germantown took place at the house. and, And my father inherited the house from his uncle, Sam, who was also named Sam. And but with the provision that my great aunt could live there, she was a spinster, and she lived there until she died at the age of ninety four wow. in nineteen fifty nine. And in nineteen sixty one, we we couldn't sell the house because it was too important historically, having had the Battle of Germantown fought there, and, and
0: so no forth. offers were coming in. So
3: we moved, yeah, so we moved in and we lived there. all in there, and a lot of battle. Uh, yeah. Washington's troops were surprised by the British who took refuge inside the house and they badly defeated Washington's troops on the morning of uh, October 7th, 1777. And that's what precipitated Washington having to go to Valley Forge to regroup for that.
0: I never knew that. That's so I, I knew that our alma mater, Paul, our alma mater, Germantown Academy, was used as a hospital as a result of that battle but i never knew that's why he went to valley forge
2: yeah they actually went out to him to hope lodge on Bethlehem pike and then uh right yeah. after the battle of germantown then they went to valley forge uh, uh for the winter and the potts family allowed them to uh have access to valley forge
0: which was a germantown academy uh, the germantown family. family yes uh, the
2: Germantown academy family
0: um paul let me ask you something because i know you know i came in from doylestown That school, and it's a wildly successful school, was that school sort of an eye-opener for you coming there to that? Like for me, from Doylestown, I know Pat and I have this experience, my brother Pat, you know, it was just like, wow, these are people we've never even, we heard about, you know, but like the Potts family, it it was really for us an eye-opener that these old revolutionary families were sort of like part of this world.
2: Um, yeah, it was interesting. I actually came from McLean, Virginia. I was living in McLean, Virginia until 1964. Then my father came to Philadelphia for business. And, uh, so we were looking at what schools, uh, you know, might be a good fit. We moved to Chestnut Hill, the Chestnut Hill area. Mm -hmm. And, uh, there was Chestnut Hill Academy, Penn Charter and, uh, Germantown Academy. And, it just seemed like a, a good fit. The, the, I met the people there and Coach Turner and others, and I yeah. happened to be a pretty good uh, pretty good athlete. And it's funny, when, one of my early memories in 1965, when I was in eight, eighth grade, second form, yeah. and playing sports, one of the alums came up to me. It, it wasn't Thatcher Longstreth, but someone along those lines. He said, Paul, I, I think you can go to Princeton. And uh, I think you have what it takes to go to Princeton. So that that was a great incentive at that point. And yeah. I uh, continued to work hard and uh, uh, befriended your brother, Pat yeah. Stack, and uh, the rest uh, of the I'm I,
0: I just going to brag for you that, one that second. That didn't Paul,
2: help much, but... Uh,
0: <laughs> Paul really was... Uh, yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, but I believe you made first team all-city in two sports. Uh, right, yeah. yes. That's, I, I, I'm telling you, everybody... That's unbelievable in in a city as large as Philadelphia, because there are only five guys on the basketball team and there's only one quarterback and Paul made first team in both of those.
2: It's pretty crazy. Real real quick sports uh, memory in my my senior year, the big Pennsylvania regional all-star game at Franklin field, I was the quarterback uh, for the city team versus the suburban team. And, uh, on my team is John Capoletti, who went to Penn State and won the Heisman trophy. Right. Uh Randy Grossman went to Penn State or went to uh, Pittsburgh Steelers and won four Super Bowl rings. And Billy White chose Johnson the greatest one of the greatest uh, kick returners in NFL history and I won the MVP of the game so oh that was God. the highlight. It's all been downhill, I can guarantee <laughs> it's all been downhill ever since. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you and me both. Uh, okay. Yeah. We're going to take...
2: Oh, no, you've, been, you've been going up.
0: I mean, okay, I'm Okay. I'm, I'm still hanging in there in show business, which <laughs> I don't recommend people getting into these days. Uh, we're going to take our final break. I'm talking to Paul Hutter. He's got two books on Amazon, The Last Philadelphia Gentleman, The Sunset of an American Ruling Class, and his second book. The Golden Age of Ivy League Basketball from Bill Bradley to Penn's Final Four, to 64-79. You're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Hey, it's Tim Stack. And having been in show business for so long, I have a lot of really funny friends. And you can hear them all on It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. That's part of the Jeremiah Show. So listen.
2: Paul Hutter, and I'm visiting with my old friend from Philadelphia, who has a great Phillies hat on, by the way, uh, Mr. Tim Stack, or we used to call him Little Stacky. And you're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. The Herbert
0: Lowell
1: Dillon Gymnasium at Princeton University has echoed to the sounds of many Tiger Stars of the past. that holds the trophies that Princeton men and Princeton teams have earned for their alma mater. Trophy won by Dick
0: Casimir, Ivy League basketball championships won by Princeton teams during the 1964-65 season. You couldn't get seats in Dylan Gym; it was sold out for a year because the Princeton basketball team was
1: that great. It was truly the year of the Tiger.
0: The year of the Tiger, voiced by Bud Palmer. That was uh, bu- <laughs> who I wait. who I also waited on once.
2: Who played for Princeton and the New York Knicks. Yes. Bud Palmer, yeah.
0: I was so thrilled. Yeah. And he lived down the street from my wife, too, in Connecticut when she was a child, like Bud Palmer. But I did. I waited on him. Who didn't I wait on? It's unbelievable. I just got to write about what they ate and how much tipping they left.
2: At Germantown, they always said you'd be a great waiter someday.
0: That's exactly right. Tim... (laughs) You, Paul. You should go to Princeton. Tim, you should be a waiter. Okay.
2: Bud, Bud Palmer.
3: Bud Palmer was my first wife's stepfather. Really? <laughs> All world. Yeah. He also was one of the founders of um, son, of um, uh, the Vale uh, Vale Associates. Yeah. Bud was an incredible guy. His father was Lefty Flynn, and Lefty Flynn was a famous cowboy movie actor. That was Bud's. That was, that was his Bud's father. father. Lefty Flynn. Wow. But that was, is
0: so funny.
3: I loved a small world. I wanted to uh, say something, yes. uh, uh, not a backhanded, but a direct compliment to Paul um, for, among other accolades and accomplishments that he has, and he deserves so much. But I think he did a wonderful job with this book because uh, uh, it's very difficult. A lot of people really don't understand that whole Philadelphia waspy by the way for people that don't know it wasp was coined by digby bauxhall who was a neighbor of mine in radnor and he taught sociology at the university of pennsylvania and it wasp means white anglo-saxon protestant but he's the one as paul will tell you to put that on the map but the thing about philadelphia is you know for instance here's an example when i lived in santa barbara people would think nothing of coming up to me and saying what did you pay for your house? How much do you want to sell your house for? Well, the way I grew up and the way Tim and Paul and all of us, you don't talk about money. You would never ask somebody how much they paid for their house. You know what I mean? It's just there's certain things you, do, you just don't do. And I think people make a mistake sometimes thinking of when they say old money. I always say, "Old money is no money," which which is pretty much <laughs> true for oh, a long time. The case, <laughs> now, a lot of our families are that way. We're, I'm not rich; I never was, but they, they maybe they've been there for a long time. You had people like the Dorrances and Fitz Dixon That's the and, Campbell
0: and, Soup people, Campbell Soup people,
3: yeah. 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 But by and large, Philadelphians, I, I would venture to say, in, in, in a defensive way, are not snobbish. Uh, they are not over the top pretentious. If anything, they're probably, for the most part, provincial. A lot of them don't go anywhere except either down the shore, Dinah Shore. No, down the shore, or maybe up to Maine, or they go to Florida to Palm Beach. No, not Palm Beach. That's for New Yorkers. But Philadelphians, I think, because of that Quaker ethic, as and Paul brings this across beautifully in his book, you know, are kind of low key. And they're not showy-offy, and they're basically good people. I just wanted to get out of there because I knew I wasn't going to be the stereotypical Philadelphia lawyer or stockbroker or whatever. And so I went to Hollywood because I couldn't do anything else. Did- but Paul captures it beautifully in that book. It's a it's a lovely, lovely book and a great read for anybody, whether they're from Philadelphia or not. Uh sociological commentary
0: absolutely and i've given the book to a lot of people and uh, they all say the same thing like this was a great read really interesting and it and it's a quiet it's not a loud expose it's not even an expose it's just a historical sort of recollection of where it all came from did either of you guys ever go to a debutante party oh yeah many
2: well, Sam, Sam would have been Mr. Debutante.
3: Uh, well, I was, yeah. We'd go to, I mean, there was a period there in the late 50s, early 60s, where you literally, you would, you'd go to a brunch and you'd have Bloody Marys and you'd drink too much at lunch. Then you'd go home, take a nap. Then you'd go to either a tea party or a full-blown debutante party with a Lester Lennon orchestra, 40 pieces, <laughs> and people like the DuPonts and the Hughes who owned Sun Oil and whatever. I mean, they were extravagant parties, even in those days. They probably cost, in the late 50s, uh, debutante parties probably cost fifty dollars to $100,000 wow, for one party dope. for one evening. And I will just tell you one quick one. I was at a debutante party in chestnut hill at the sunnybrook golf club paul knows this uh right in 1964 before i graduated from temple i wasn't trying to be an actor or anything i was dancing with a girl and her name was meg davis and she and i'm not going to tell you who she was until the end but she said sam you're going to europe this summer i hear yeah you gotta call up my aunt i said you're kidding she said no i want you to call her up i got this phone number I got over to the south of France when I was jetting around Europe. I went to Monte Carlo and I called up and I was invited up to the palace. And I spent three nights and three days with her serene highness, Princess Grace. Wow. It was Meg Davis. That's Meg Grace Davis.
0: Kelly for us regular people out <laughs> Grace there. Kelly. And I walked
3: it's in and I Ocean walked- City. Yeah. Oh, and I went to the palace. I, I was I was petrified. I didn't know how to act. I walked in, and she comes out. She's in this sort of aviary, and she comes in with gardening gloves and shorts, and she most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And and I said, "Oh, your your Majesty." And she said, "Sam, knock it off. I'm from Philly too." Yeah, good for That's her. Exactly she said, "Can you imagine?" There's
0: a great There's picture a- of her on a set of High Noon. And she just looks from, I don't know if you've ever seen this picture. You can find it. It's, it's her talking to Zinnemann, the director, and Gary Cooper. And she's in these khaki pants and white Adler socks, if you remember them, and Baswegian loafers. Yeah. And it's just like you realize, yeah, she was a woman from Philadelphia who made it into Hollywood. But that Philly girl is, so, that yeah. Philly society girl is so clear in that picture of just the casual look yeah. of what she's wearing. Um, Sam, you weren't at that crazy bachelor party with uh, the Wanamaker family. Yeah, I was. You were I the... was for escort. Oh, my but I God. Did, no I wonder they rioted. Go, I didn't go to the house wrecking party because I,
3: and I didn't have too much to drink, but I had a stomachache and I went home. I just didn't go to the after party. Which And actually, it wasn't really. The, it was in Life magazine and our pictures. New York Times, I Yes and they took big. Pick- it was a big they blew it out of proportion i mean it was a, basically an empty house and somebody swung on a chandelier bill pips was his name and and broke and they broke a few windows and that was it but the district attorney of suffolk county was up for re-election and he made a big deal out of it you know we're going to really get back at all these society people yeah so it came up now it's a
0: classic uh vanity fair story so let's yeah. get Paul back into this. So, uh, Paul, quickly, the basketball book you wrote, I, I have to say, which was I was going to leapfrog to this question. this I was thinking about my favorite Philadelphia memories, and I've asked both of you to chime in. But I'll jump in because one of them involves the Palestra, uh, which was my brother and I were there the night Calvin Murphy scored 52 points, which is still the scoring record. But tell everybody, I, it's 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 hard to uh, explain without you know. For me, I get so not emotional, but just like you can't believe this place, the Palestra. Tell everybody a little bit about your book and about that era of Philadelphia basketball.
2: Yeah, well, the, the the Palestra is the home court of uh, the University of Pennsylvania, and it's uh, really a living museum. It's it's where the uh, uh, basketball, along with Madison Square Garden, <laughs> excuse me, was really started and and uh, established in the '40s and '50s and into the '60s. And the the reason I wrote the book is people don't realize when, when they when they think of Ivy League basketball, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, and so forth, they they think of uh, you know small time, yeah, sure. not really that competitive. But between 1965, when Bill Bradley arrived at, uh, uh, senior year at Princeton and 1979, Penn, uh, Princeton and Penn were in the final four. Uh, the league Ivy league was much more like the ACC. The teams were as good as Duke or North Carolina. Yes, In fact, they beat Duke and North Carolina on a regular basis. And a lot of the games were, were played at the, the palestra. And, uh, you had the five teams from Philadelphia, Temple, Penn, and, uh, uh, LaSalle, Villanova, all playing there and rivalries. And it's, it was just a it, it's unbelievable. It's really it, center of the basketball universe along with Madison Square Garden. But
0: every Wednesday and Saturday, there would be a big five doubleheader. You right. know, every, it was just crazy. I think their tickets were $2 and, and just so much fun. You could take the train right to 30th Street Station. So uh, we're getting short on time here. I wanted to ask both of you, your favorite Philadelphia foods. Anything come to mind?
2: Uh, Well, well, I was just down uh, down the shore uh, last weekend, and I had something that I can't get in New York. I live in Bronxville, New York, but uh, I had scrapple.
0: Yeah, scrapple's the guy. I'm ordering some on Good Belly because, uh, uh, and my son, I turned my son-in-law onto it. It's just like the minute people try it, it's either the greatest food they've ever eaten. For breakfast, or the worst, but it's uh, and don't ask what it's made of, because it's that's, literally the scraps that, on the floor.
2: Yeah. So much yes. yes. Pennsylvania Dutch sausage is. Uh, yeah.
0: Um, way to it. And uh, ha, uh, Sam, how about you? Uh, is there a memory or, or a, a great Philadelphia memory for both of you? That question I, I brought up. Calvin Murphy. Anything come to mind, Sam? You mentioned your farm in Radnor.
3: Yeah, that was, I mean, probably my my fondest memory uh, when I look back over my 80 years, you know, I mean, I just always go back to uh, being on the farm as a little boy for the first 12 years, you know, because it was just we had, you know, fields of clover and sheep and we'd go out and and play with the cows and and we had cows, sheep, chickens, everything. And and Radnor then was... Was rural. It was farm country. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, and it's it was, it's it still
0: was... beautiful, but the same thing happened in Bucks County. These developments, like Deer Landing, get built, and it's like the only thing yeah. a deer ever landed on was the hood of a car. So uh, yeah, I had that happen up there, uh, Paul. Anything jump in your mind? Like you live in Bronxville. Anything like when you think Philly? Like your best memory? Probably Franklin Field with you winning uh, the I mean, NBT. That
2: Theory. was it. <laughs> also, romantically, I went out with. Uh, uh, beth federoff uh, uh-huh. during my high school years so that was my best romantic memory morty uh, sam knows morty federoff mm-hmm. uh, best older brother and uh, she was at uh, dave lawson described beth as being uh, looking like uh, julie christie only more beautiful
0: so wow that's, i'm gonna have to break out my brother's yearbook this weekend and look <laughs> at her so i can see that
3: yeah. I, I just want to mention about Scrapple, which is my favorite, too. And, of course, soft-shell crabs or hoagies, cheesesteaks. But I believe if you check at the Montecito market, they used to carry Scrapple because there was somebody, I don't know who, from Philadelphia, but used to have it sent in there.
0: Yeah. No, I, it's just Gold Belly now, um, which I have no problem ordering. I just They also have Bassett's ice cream, so I get some of that, too. Uh, anyway, guys, uh, uh, Sam Chu and Paul Hutter, thank you so much for joining me today. This was really fun. I want to give one last plug uh, to Paul's book. Books, sorry. Uh, The first one is called The Last Philadelphia Gentleman. Kind of about Sam Chu, uh, in a way. The Sunset of an American Ruling Class. And his second book, The Golden Age of Ivy League Basketball. If you like college basketball and like the history of that, it's a great period in college basketball. From Bill Bradley to Penn's Final Four. Sam, get your book written. America is waiting. Okay, I will. Thank okay. Thank you guys so much. Great to see you, Tim. Uh, great to see you. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you and hear you next time on It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack.
3: As always, a big thanks to our station manager, Les Carroll, for letting us on the air at all Listeners, we appreciate you and want to hear from you. Please send us your ideas at jeremiah at com or on Messenger, on Facebook, or Instagram. The show is produced by executive producer Jeremiah Higgins and me, your announcer,
1: Tony Kelly.